Welcome to this episode of our Thirsty Podcast. I'm Pastor Michael Zarling. And I'm Pastor Nathan Klusmeyer. And today we're going to be talking about the time in between. Uh, so in the past, we'll be talking about the end times. Nathan, do you have anything to say about the season of end times? I really liked the season of end times, but in the new lectionary, uh, we eliminated the season of end times and went back to Sundays after Pentecost. And I'm not completely up on the history of this, but I believe it was something that when we had done some lectionary work in the 70s, um, we had come up with the idea of having an end time season that the Lutheran churches kind of did. And then it didn't really catch on, and so we made the decision with the new lectionary to go back to the historic church year. However, most of the readings still in this time of year all have to do with last judgment, end of the world kind of themes. And so really, it's still kind of an, is an end times theme, um, but we're actually kicking it off this Sunday, uh, even though the Festival of All Saints falls on November 1st, we're celebrating All Saints this Sunday. Yeah, so a couple of things with that here locally is October 31st. Yeah, obviously, the kids will be celebrating Halloween, so I made sure to wish them all a happy Reformation Day. And then in the evening, an All Hallows' Eve, and then an All Saints' Day, and then an All Souls' Day, November 2nd, just to both confuse them and then to enlighten them on the, on the church year. And then here locally, I feel the same way as, as Nathan, maybe a little more strongly than he worded it, that uh, we like the new hymnal, like the new lectionary, except we did like the seas of end times. So at Water of Life, we're still celebrating the end time season. We're just not, we're not calling it the Sundays after Pentecost. We're, uh, we'll be having the colors red and white yet for the for the last four Sundays of the church year. And since we purchased paintings several years ago for our Racine campus, we have five sets of paintings that changed during the church year. We had a set created just for this season of end time, so we are putting those up. And I would say, too, we had uh, a member in our church who very nicely bought and donated some amazing red and black Reformation stoles with the Luther seal and VDMA in it. And we just don't get to wear them that often. So any excuse that we can add red into the church here to wear those stoles, I think is something we should do more often. Yeah. yeah so here at Water of Life, we're going to be celebrating All Saints Day, like Nathan said. Uh, the theme overall is the time in between. And the theme specifically for this Sunday is a time to focus on future glory. And the first scripture lesson we're going to look at is from Matthew. It's the beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And what's interesting with this is just how the, the lectionary builds, that with this scripture reading, it kind of shows us the, the saints on earth. And then because later on when we get to the, the main reading for today for, and for this Sunday from Revelation 7, that will show us the saints in heaven. So Nathan, you want to read the gospel lesson then to show us what we do as, or God wants us to be doing as saints on earth. Uh, from Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up onto a mountain. When he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them. He said these things, Blessed are the poor in spirit, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are those who mourn because they will be comforted. Blessed are the Gentile, be- gentle because they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful because they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart because they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers because they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. In fact, that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So what Jesus is talking about here is maybe that time in between, uh, that we are uh, the time in between of Jesus' ascension into heaven and then Jesus' return on the last day, what we would call the church militant. And with the new hymnal, too, uh, look at the new headings. There, uh, there are headings for the church militant as well as the church triumphant. And the church militant means the church at war, the church that is not at peace. Nathan, as we go through this, do you want to just kind of look at each of these verses, each of these uh, beatitudes or statements of blessing and kind of explain them that way? Sure, we can do that. So Jesus begins, blessed are the poor in spirit because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what does that mean? I think that's always kind of had for me the idea of that humility, not so much like poor in faith, but that poor in spirit, the humble spirit, um, maybe more downtrodden, um, because it does talk that theirs will be the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. Um, that while perhaps circumstances in this life are not good for them, the circumstances in heaven are far greater than anything they'll experience here. So, I read another pastor's blog post today. He sent in an email, and he had something interesting. He was calling it the boomerang paradox. And what he was talking about is if, you're, if you throw a boomerang, you can't throw it at what you're aiming because a boomerang does not go straight. You have to kind of throw it off to the side, and it'll, it'll come to it. And he was talking about how oftentimes in our culture, we even do this as Christians, we aim for comfort. We aim for peace. We aim for happiness. And if we aim for those things, we're not going to hit them. When you think about how much of our culture is focused on eliminating pain and discomfort, um, I've heard some people talk about in our society the loss of learning how to put up with suffering, to endure suffering uh, with patience. Because everything we, as a society, we are focused on eliminating pain and discomfort and that seems to be something that we've lost, that idea of sacrifice, of bearing a cross. is just something that societally we don't value anymore. Right. And so what he, the point of his, his long email was that if we're aiming for happiness, we'll never be happy. We'll always miss it. But if we're aiming for, in this verse, if we're aiming for the kingdom of heaven, Happiness will come because we are serving others in that kingdom. And like you said, if we're looking for patience and endurance, we're never going to get that on our own. That's oftentimes what's brought to us because we're living in that kingdom of heaven. And then because of that, we'll see this at the end of the Beatitudes. Then suffering comes on us. And because suffering comes on us, then uh, patience and endurance, we, we learn those things. 
the fourth verse, blessed are those who mourn because they will be comforted. I've heard that taken two ways about mourning over sin, you know, repentance, contrition, and then you be comforted with the gospel, uh, with forgiveness and absolution. Or if you just take it very simply, uh, blessed are those who mourn. Uh, for those who are mourning, and that's what the whole point of All Saints Day is, you mourn for those saints that have left and you're filled with tears and sorrow and sadness, melancholy. And yet, uh, as we come to God in his resurrection promises, that's when we're comforted. When I've seen that too, when you read Isaiah's description of what heaven is like, and he talks about it in that place where there will be no more weeping or crying or pain, that mourning, pain, pain over loss, it, that's reality of life here on earth. And that heaven is not going to be that reality. Heaven is going to be completely different. There isn't going to be any loss. With that loss, that just reminded me, I was telling Nathan, my children's devotion for Sunday, I had heard this question elsewhere, and I want to bring it up to the kids. And, and talking to them about the new heaven and the new earth. So I heard this question from another young child. And I thought it'd be good for the kids to wrestle with it. And on Sunday, I'll ask the adults to wrestle with it too. And the question is, will there be caterpillars in the new heaven and the new earth? And you might think, well, of course there's going to be caterpillars. But, you know, what happens to caterpillars to become butterflies? They eventually, you know, they eat and eat. And they fill themselves up on their leaves. And they usually just eat that. Well, they, they eat milkweeds. And then... Uh, they eventually they put the cocoon around them and then their body just kind of turns to mush but they have everything inside of them so those bones then become an antennae and everything that well they don't only have bones but they have whatever insects have that are like bones and then exoskeleton thank you and then they have what they need to become butterflies so there's really a kind of a, a death and rebirth type process, a metamorphosis. So the question then is, if there's going to be caterpillars, does that mean there aren't going to be moths or butterflies? If there's going to be moths and butterflies, does that mean there aren't going to be caterpillars? You got a question? You got an answer for that one, Nathan? He's just looking at me. I, I do not okay. have an answer to that, no. Yeah, and I thought that was a great question by this kid, and I want... The kids to struggle with it. But the point is, I want them to struggle with it is thinking, this is how wonderful the new heaven and the new earth is going to be after God destroys this earth and the heaven, really the heavens, uh, sky and space, so that we can live here like it's the new Garden of Eden. Uh, the next verse, blessed are the gentle because they will inherit the earth. This has always struck me because you think of how counterintuitive this statement of Christ is. And Michael, I'm going to ask you a little trivia now. Okay. What is the first song that we have recorded in Scripture? The first one that comes to mind is uh, Moses and Miriam's song. Oh, it's actually before that. It's Lamech's sword song. Yeah, I would not have guessed Where that. he talks about, you know, and it's one of the first pieces of poetry we have recorded. And it's this guy talking about... You know, Cain was chased out by one. Um, Lamech kills those who wound him, and it's this—it's this. You know, you see already within one gener, two generations um, of creation, you have this man praising 
violence. And that's the way of the world. Not that the gentle inherit the earth, that the strong inherit the earth. And then several generations after that, you read with uh, Genesis 6, with the flood, the Nephilim were on earth. Well, the Nephilim are not what people say they are of half angels, half humans. No, they're just, like you're saying, these leaders, you know, maybe you would say like the violence of the, the Huns, of the Germanic warriors, of the Vikings, any of those kind of barbaric uh, peoples that we think of that would conquer peoples and countries, and yet, yeah, they may conquer physical earth, but they don't really inherit the earth. And, And there I would think of that, the new heavens and the new earth. But it is just something, you know, with the Christian, if you talk about it, purely from a philosophical standpoint, how opposite that is of every other secular pagan philosophy where it's the emphasis is on your strength and this here is on gentleness, humility, kindness, love, and that's what Christ taught. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. There, that's definitely what we would talk about on Sunday worship Uh, and every day in our worship, whether it's uh, at home in our scripture lessons that we're reading devotions or uh, listening to podcasts like this when we are praying with our children uh, at, at school at work when we're reading our bibles all of those things when we are thirsting for righteousness and not just uh, filling ourselves up on the things of this world and that's one of the things i have to always counter because I've said before, I'm trying to listen to and read a lot of different books. I've really become a big fan of Roald Dahl. It's really hard to go from listening to some of these really uh, deep books and then to read Roald Dahl, and sometimes I'm listening to both at various times during the same day. Uh, But then I also have to make sure I need to be filling up my time listening to Scripture, listening to uh, the Lutheran Confessions, listening to podcasts, that are scriptural, not political and so forth, or cultural in nature. Thirst for righteousness, and then you're filled. And I think of here, too, of Paul in Romans 7, talking about the good I want to do, I don't do. The evil I don't want to do, this I keep on doing. This desire we have as Christians to live lives free of sin, and how, while we are on this earth, we will still have that sinful nature. How we hunger and thirst for righteousness and that perfection will only be fulfilled in heaven. And then, too, the idea I struggle, too, with making sure I'm reading my Bible. And we always have this desire, I need to do this more, I need to do this more. And then the idea that in heaven, we won't have to read Scripture because we will be living with the Word, with Christ, that we will be in the presence of God day and night. Yeah, and getting into Scriptures, I don't think you want to feel guilty. You didn't read as much as you wanted to. The idea is... Read a little bit and then meditate on that. Sometimes read long portions of Scripture, but the idea is just get into God's Word. Of uh, one, of our, one of my friends had emailed me the other day and asked me if there was a, uh, a Bible reading of the EHV, the Evangelical Heritage Version that we use in our churches because there's ones for the King James and the NIV and so forth. And I told him that there wasn't, but I did give him John Brug's phone number, who is the general editor of the EHV, and I said, I bet you if you just call up Professor Brug, he can just read the EHV to you. 
Professor Deutschlander had done a series of evening lectures a number of years ago at the seminary, uh, and he kind of lamented what he felt was one of the things that has really harmed some people is this idea of an everyday, or not an everyday Bible, but read through the Bible in a year. And he said, yeah, no, sometimes there's portions of Scripture, yeah, you can read a lot of it, but then there's other portions, he's like, you may get through two verses because there's just so much packed into those two verses to read and to meditate on. Well, I mean, just look at how we're talking about this relatively short section of Matthew and how much is packed yep. into 12 verses. Yeah, and, and I tell people, too, when they're new new to Christianity, new to the church, because God's blessing me with uh, having people come to my classes that they ask, what, Pastor, what are these little numbers in the Bible? Well, those are chapters, and these really little ones, those are verses. So they obviously have not picked up a Bible and read it, which is, which is good that now they're learning. And then they ask because they want to get reading the Bible, and I'll tell them, you know, read Genesis, read Exodus, and then skip a whole bunch because I don't want you to get bogged down in Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those, those are hard, and you're not going to understand them. And there's, you, know, you might not want to read the minor prophets right away. But I tell them, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Romans, and then read other portions of Scripture, and then come back and read those portions. Read Romans a lot. Read the Gospels a lot. And maybe there's other portions of Scripture. It might sound heretical, but maybe read those a little bit less so you can focus on the, one, the, the ones that are easier to understand. Well, that's... It does sound a little heretical, but it also is keeping with... I think it's, it's reality, though, too. Well, but it's also standing with long, long tradition. I mean, even, even the Old Testament Jews had those books um, that they talked about. They were so holy, they defiled the hands, that that was meant for... You were only supposed to read those books after you had built up your, your faith. You had consumed that milk, spiritual milk, and you were now ready for solid food to build up to those things. And and Peter talks about that too, where he talks about, you know, there's a lot of things that Paul writes that are difficult to understand. And I know Professor Becker years ago had given the same advice with the book of Revelation, where he would tell people, you know, you need to read through the rest of the Bible two or three times, then go to Revelation, because there's so much in there that you need the rest of Scripture to understand. Right. Now the next verse Blessed are the merciful because they will receive mercy. That's not karma. It's just God, Jesus is telling us there, you know, this is what we do as Christians. And that's really the key here is Jesus is not telling us, you know, giving us new commands. He's not uh, telling us to do this and then we feel guilty. He's saying, as a Christian, this is just what you're going to do. You're going to be mercy, merciful and Lord willing when you're merciful then people will see when you're in need, they'll demonstrate mercy to you. Anything else on that one? No, I was going to kind of segue into the next one. Go to the next um, one. Blessed are the pure in heart because they will see God. And this too is kind of the idea that Luther struggled with for a long night time where you know he read the righteous will live by faith and he understood that as a righteousness of the law to begin with. And same here, you could read this as Jesus is saying you need to be free from sin in order to see God. But again, that's not that's not what scripture says. This is the purity of heart we have through faith, not because of our works, not because we're so good, not because we can even live without sinning, but no it's that purity, it's that righteousness that comes to us through the gospel, the righteousness that Christ won for us on the cross. 
blessed are the peacemakers because they will be called sons of God. That peace is hard to come by, especially, you know, we live in a culture right now, and I'll be bringing these kinds of things into my sermon on Revelation on Sunday. You know, there's, we're just, it seems like we're on the verge of World War Three, when there's uh, all kinds of uh, riots in our streets and other streets around the world, uh, when there's everything having to do with sexuality and gender confusion and so much in our world right now. And as Christians, we want, kind of want to jump in and say, well, this is right, this is wrong. And better is we're coming and bring peace, the peace of, of Christ uh, to make that peace. And it's hard, but then when we are doing that, when we are coming as peacemakers on the side of the Prince of Peace, we see that we are then called sons and daughters of God. And you're kind of addressing it on the macro level. The micro level is just the peace that, you know, we struggle so much just with people in our lives, whether I'm thinking of my my children and the arguments that seem to be incessant over one thing or another, often over Madden, it seems like. <laughs> um, but, you know, you see it in your congregations, in your schools, um, among your families, just that, you know, we're, unfortunately, we still have a sinful nature and at the root, we're all selfish. We want to have our way. And it's hard to be the peacemaker, to be willing to say, listen, we need to live together in harmony. And often that means compromising, giving up something you want, the other person giving up something and, and living together in peace. And it's interesting, you, you read just how many of Paul's letters address this issue of of infighting and dissension in the congregations that he had ministered to and how he encourages them, too, to live in peace. Yeah, and then blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And again, these are statements of fact that Jesus is giving. And he's just saying as a statement of fact, hey, Christian, you're going to be merciful. Uh, you're going to be pure in heart. You're going to make peace. And because you're doing these things and you are going after my kingdom, and you're appearing to others as the son of God and the daughter of God that I have made you to be, now you're going to be persecuted. And it is just one of those things, again, because we have a society that wants to avoid persecution, wants to avoid pain, wants to avoid suffering. It's sometimes hard to wrap our heads around the disciples who could be thrown in jail and then would rejoice and thank God that they had been thrown in jail for their faith or even the martyrs, which we've talked about in other podcasts, other episodes, who rejoiced when they were put to death as a witness and a testimony to their faith, who would give such powerful statements of their faith as they were being put to death. Yeah, so we should never shirk away from from being persecuted. It's hard, again, to welcome persecution. You know, but, but Paul says that he rejoiced in his sufferings. And you think, this guy's crazy. Why would you rejoice in your sufferings and in your persecution? Same thing with those apostles when they're uh, let out of prison and then they said they're told not to preach in Christ's name and they weren't going to keep him preaching and then they're scourged and then they go, woohoo! You know, they're counted worthy and they're excited. That's the way we want to be, to be excited. Yeah, we're dragged in front of... In front of uh, kings and courts and councils, like I always say, we're, we're dragged in front of the city council that we are, uh, you know, maybe remaining open when we're told to close. 
or whatever it is that, uh, or I was thinking of this the other day when we were talking about persecution several years ago. I don't remember which city it was in in Texas, but they had, I think it was a female mayor or something like that, where she wanted all the pastors, they had to submit their sermons to the city council and to her to approve so that there wasn't anything about homosexuality in that. Do you remember that, Nathan? No, I, I don't remember that. Okay. But but they're you know wondering, are pastors really going to do that? And I would hope that they didn't. And if something like that comes up, they never do because uh, they're going to, you know, they may make earthly peace, but that's not how you make earthly peace. Uh, that's not how you make peace. It's peace with God. That's the key. And you stand up for the truth of God even when people are going to be calling you out and they're going to be canceling you and persecuting you. Just think, and it's a good thing. It is a blessing from God. We still don't have this potent, visible reminder. Um, but I was thinking of, I was listening to a podcast the other day that was talking about um, some archaeological work going on in Italy where they found one of the old um, Christian churches from the three, 200s, 300s. Um, and how extensive the catacombs were under that church and how the Christians of that era would have a, a visible reminder in the walls underneath the church of those who had been killed for the faith, how they could see literally the bodies of those saints that were now in heaven who had finished their race but had given them a visible example of those who had conquered and were now living with their Savior. Yeah, and Jesus then builds on that with the last few verses blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me so he said this is going to happen and they're going to insult you they're going to persecute you they're even going to make up stories about you but he says rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven in fact that's how they persecute the prophets who were before you. So just as the apostles rejoiced, they were counted worthy to be counted uh, alongside of Jesus. Now when you and I are persecuted for our testimony, we should rejoice because we're counted worthy to be counted along with the Old Testament, apost Old Testament prophets. And then that leads us into the, the main reading for this Sunday, the first reading from Revelation chapter 7. Uh, there, again, uh, here in Matthew, we're talking about the church militant, the church here on earth, the church at war. And especially we hear that in the last few verses when we're talking about the persecution. And then uh, when you hear the elder in heaven telling John, well, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation, out of the great time of suffering and pain and persecution that Jesus just referenced we're going to be living in. Uh, Revelation 7. So this is John saying these words after receiving a vision of heaven from Jesus Christ. After these things I looked, and there was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing in front of the throne and of the Lamb, clothed with white robes and with palm branches in their hands. They called out with a loud voice and said, Salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne, the elders and the four living creatures. They fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped him, worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and might belong to our God forever and ever. Amen. 
One of the elders spoke to me and said, These people dressed in white robes, who are they and where do they come from? And I answered him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who are coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Because of this, they are in front of the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. He who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. They will never hunger or be hungry or thirsty ever again. The sun will never beat upon them, nor will any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So, so Nathan, John says here, there was a great multitude that no one can count, but when you read Revelation chapter 7, the earlier verses, he tells us how many there were. He says there's 144,000 that he saw. So did he just not know how to count after this, or why can't he count them? I, I was going to throw this joke at you, but okay. you got to it first, so thank you. So for that, you know, a, a number of different groups have at times claimed that there's only going to be 144,000. I know the Jehovah's Witnesses being one that they then had to modify because they realized that well, we have more people than that now at this point, so are we just going to tell everyone that converted later? Yeah, you don't get to get into heaven. Um, this is one of those, Revelation uses a lot, of, a lot of numbers for symbols. And what we really seem to have here is 12 times 12 is 144. And it seems to be talking about both believers from the Old Testament, which is often symbolized with the 12 tribes of Israel, and then the New Testament, the 12 apostles. You get 12 and 12 gives you the 144. And then the 1,000 is 10. What is that? 10 cubed? 10 times 10 times 10. 10 times 10, which is the idea of complete perfection. And so what you're seeing here, that, that number of 144,000 represents all believers from all time, which then John explains is the great multitude from every tribe, nation, and language that no one can count. Yeah, when he says... Every nation, tribe, people, and language, that's another way of saying of the angels who are gathering the saints from the four corners of the earth. Uh, and they are standing in front of the throne and of the Lamb. And again, I, I referenced this before with the paintings that we have at our Racine campus. And one of the things that some of our members had asked me to do uh, over the last few years was to explain the new paintings to the kids so that the adults would remember what the painting stood for. And the one painting that we have up on the left side of our church behind the pulpit is Jesus on his throne, and he's got his feet on the earth. Uh, all things are placed under his feet. And on his right-hand side are the sheep from Matthew 25. And like Nathan said earlier, is that you really need to know the rest of Scripture to be able to properly understand Revelation. So when uh, Jesus says in Matthew 25 that the sheep, the believers are on the right, they are pictured with an angel with a long scroll, the book of life, with their names written in it, and then these two saints with white robes and crowns on them. And then the left-hand side are the goats. Those would be unbelievers that are being led away by a demon. And then Jesus on his throne, he has his robe on, but on his left-hand side, you can see the, the, the mark in his side from the spear. 
Then the right-hand side of our church behind the lectern is now the lamb on the throne, and it's a very visible same wound from the spear on, on the lamb. And then behind him are all the saints, and they're dressed in their white robes. They're holding palm branches of victory. They have crowns of glory. And then flowing out of the throne is the river of life. And when you get to the back of the painting, there are two uh, trees of life that are uh, growing up over the river of life. And then behind that is uh, Jerusalem, the golden. And that's kind of all pictured here, that they're standing in front of the throne and of the lamb clothed with white robes with palm branches in their hands. So you're talking about the new Jerusalem, which will have the temple depicted by Ezekiel with its perfect dimensions and not a temple that has to get rebuilt in Jerusalem here on earth. Right. I just, I brought that up kind of tongue in cheek because I just, I've been seeing a number of news stories over the last couple of weeks talking about a number of American Christians who have been talking about how, well, here we are, folks. We are we are in the war that was prophesied in the book of Revelation. This is the final battle leading up to Armageddon. And I just, I, I shudder at the false teaching that is being taught out there that, you know, Revelation is talking about a spiritual battle um, that has already been won by Christ on the cross, that there isn't going to be this this earthly battle with the forces of Satan and the world fighting against Christians and the forces of heaven, that that's not the point of Revelation. The point of Revelation is to give us a picture of the entire history of the New Testament church, from Christ's ascension to his return, that we are living in the end times, that all the signs have been fulfilled. Christ could return at any moment. And we we wait in eagerly uh, um, anticipation for that. Yeah, and then... It says, salvation comes from our God. So this is a loud voice saying this. Salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne, the elders and the four living creatures. So you've got the angels that are different from the saints. So that's, I bring it up just like you were talking about false doctrine, that I see this even from fellow Christians that they have a loved one that dies, and then they place they put it on Facebook saying, uh, another angel got her wings. Oh, my goodness. No, that's a saint that got her white robe. That's the correct theology. Saints and angels are different. I love that picture, too, um, as having a child that has frequent, and I do mean frequent, nosebleeds, and how blood does not make things white. It stains, and it's really hard to get out. But we have this beautiful picture that Christ's blood purifies. And we even have that in the Old Testament, that idea that blood purifies, that we are washed, we are clean in the blood of the Lamb. And that picture, again, it's a picture that doesn't match, you know, reality in this world, but it's that picture of Christ's holy blood washing us all, that we have been washed, we have been cleaned um, and purified in the blood of the Lamb. And I like, too, that I sometimes explain to people when some people bring up the question of, well, Pastor, why, you know, why do you wear a robe? It'd be better if you were just standing in front of us in a suit and a tie every Sunday. And to remind them of the symbolism of the alb is that white robe that when you're standing before you, you're not to s- supposed to see Nathan Klusmeyer 
the man, you're supposed to see the white robe as someone as a representative of God, that you're not to think about all of my failings and faults, but instead to hear the message that is being spoken by, um, well, I just came across this somewhere, the angel of the church, the messenger of the church who's bringing the message of God to the people. But what, what if you and I wear our black cassocks instead of the white alps? They just look cool. They do look cool, but it's not, it's not that the white alb is, hey, we're, we're really holy this day, and we wear the black cassock, and now we're sinful that day. No, I just like the fact that as Lutherans, we, we have the freedom that we can make choices in Adiaphora like that and wear, wear different liturgical robes. But I do, like, I do like the symbolism of the alb, and I like pointing that out to people that, no, there, there's a reason we wear these. There's a picture there. And that's a picture we see in this reading, the saints in the white robes. Yeah. And you've got these, the saints and the angels. You have the elders and the four living creatures. And so those are symbolic of all of the, the, the creatures of the earth. They're, uh, and the key, too, with Revelation is not to push any of the, this picture language too far. Because you have the saints pictured different ways, too. But, but I love the fact with the four creatures and with this section of Revelation, you see the unity of Scripture. You see clear references both to Isaiah and to Ezekiel in this section and how it's showing that, that Scripture is a unified whole. It's God's Word, that it all works and fits together and gives us a beautiful picture of God's plan for salvation. So John sees these saints uh, streaming to heaven. And he asks one of the elders, these people dressed in white robes, who are they and where do they come from? I answered him, sir, you know. So John doesn't want to answer. And the elder said to me, these are the ones who are coming out of the great tribulation. And in the past, that had been translated as a past tense. These are they who have come out. The HV correctly translates it as uh, coming out. It's present tense. And so that means that you and I are uh, the saints that John sees streaming in heaven. But it would also have been our great-great-grandparents who are Christians, as well as, Lord willing, our great-great-grandchildren who are streaming into heaven. And what are they wearing? They're wearing these white robes. Uh, and I had the blessing on Wednesday to give chapel to our uh, Wisconsin Lutheran school children. And, and I told them the story about a little girl I said when she was about a month old, she was brought by her mom to be baptized at the church. The pastor poured water over her head and said, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Then about three years later, the same mom brought this little girl, but now her little sister, to the baptismal font, and the pastor baptized her. And about three years later, that mom with two girls now brought a third sister to the pastor, and he baptized the third daughter. And those girls were all baptized in Kentucky. And then I said, and then the mom and the three girls brought another little sister. And it was about 17 years ago to the baptismal font here in this church. And the pastor baptized her as well. And that pastor was me. I baptized all four of my daughters. And then I showed them the baptismal gown that my mom had made and given to my oldest daughter, Abby, to wear, and then all four of the girls had worn for their baptisms. And I talked about then what happens in baptism, but the point of talking about baptism there was to say that with this reading from Revelation is 
we are wearing these white robes now every time we confess our sins. It's as if we are being brought back to the baptismal font and the pastor is washing us again with that cleansing bath or shower of baptism. We are clothed with that white baptismal gown that is connected to Christ's blood and his righteousness. And the point is that, Lord willing, we'll still be believers, still be saints when we die, and then we'll be wearing this white baptismal gown, just be bigger, when we get into heaven. So I just wanted them to understand that that connection of baptism and that white baptismal gown, seeing the pastor in the white alb, and what we'll be wearing for eternity. It really is unfortunate that that tradition has kind of passed out of common, pretty much common usage, but that used to be a big thing. You would have that baptismal gown that would be handed through a family for different generations to be baptized in it. I think, I'm trying to remember, I'm not sure if our family had that or not. I don't remember completely. I only baptized one of my children. I, I baptized my oldest daughter, um, and then the, the boys were baptized, one by our pastor in Watoma, and then the other one, our youngest, was baptized by my father. Yeah, and, and with those, those baptismal gowns, uh, my wife Shelly and I, we pulled out the baptismal gown and it was the first time we'd seen it in 17 years since Belle was baptized. And then Shelly was remembering, because she remembers these things way better than I do, that my mom made a baptismal gown for each of my uh, the three children in our family. And it was good, too, so that we didn't have one that we had to pass out to all 10 grandchildren, especially when Miriam and then uh, my nephew, AJ, they were born just a few days apart. And so, and we were trying to remember where my sister was living at the time. It, it was not close to where we were in Kentucky to try and get the baptismal gown from one place to the other. Uh, but it is a, a neat tradition to hand down. And since you're talking about baptismal gown traditions, I don't know anyone who's done this, but I've heard of this, of you know, moms, you know, after their wedding, you know, they're not going to use their wedding dress again, but they keep it. Oftentimes, now sometimes they sell it, but what I've heard of some moms doing is then turning their white wedding dress into a white baptismal gown. And I thought, that's a pretty cool tradition. I've heard of that tradition as well. Um, again, I think that goes back, though, to a time when, you know, those materials were more scarce and people wanted to use something that they probably, silk was often used for wedding gowns, something that was not easy to come by and then would find another use for it instead of just having it, you know, hang in a closet and you only see it when you move going, oh yeah, we still have this. I haven't looked at this in 18 years. Yeah, and it's a reminder that John is writing the book of Revelation to Christians who are living under persecution. And so these next few verses are very important that These are the ones who are coming out of the great tribulation, the great time of suffering, the great time of persecution, but not just in John's day. Uh, I think, you know, again, as we were talking about false doctrines and false ways of applying revelation, people want to apply revelation only to their own time period. John is writing to Christians of all time periods. So the first century Christians who were the first ones to hear and read this letter 
they're suffering persecution. But it's just as poignant for us today, living in 21st century America and beyond, who are hearing these words of John, because we too are living in the time of great tribulation. And I think it's important to remember that while it's true, I mean, things may get worse right before the end. We know that the effects of sin on the world, the world is groaning as of the pains of childbirth. I mean, creation is slowly grinding down towards the end, but we shouldn't be looking for some great tribulation that's going to signal that the end of the world is on us. Paul had said all the signs have been fulfilled way back in the first century, eight, well, no, it wouldn't be the first century. Yeah, it's the first century AD. Mm-hmm. Um, Paul had said all the signs have been fulfilled now to watch because Christ could return at any moment then. Um, And that Christians have always looked forward into anticipation, hoping that the end is near. Um, And that's what we we pray for, that Christ would come quickly. He could come tomorrow. He could come 100 years, 200 years from now. But we should live our lives as if he could come at any moment. I know I've just been glancing ahead. That's next week's reading talking about the wise and foolish virgins waiting for the bridegroom. And that's how we're to live. We are to live as if Christ could return at any moment. Not, though, with the idea, well, if I'm ready, then I'll for sure get into heaven. No, this idea, we've been washed, but because we're awaiting the return of our king, we want to welcome him with open arms. And when I talk to the children in the chapel devotion, I talk to them about how even though they're baptized, they're going to sin. They're going to get their baptismal gowns dirty. And they're going to do that in different ways. Maybe it's being mean to others on the bus. Or if they're the ones that are picked on on the bus, they're the ones that are quietly taking it, but then plotting their revenge. Or maybe it's the way they acted and spoke to their parents when they left or weren't paying attention because they had their noses in a device. The way they don't try hard at school. Uh, and just pile up late homework and all of these kinds of sins. But also, because we're sinners living in a sinful world, they're going to encounter death, maybe from grandpa or grandma, uh, sickness because of an aunt or uncle who has cancer. Maybe they or someone they know has been in a car accident. Uh, And then uh, I said they don't really have to focus on old age and the issues with it. But I don't know, Nathan, do you ever have any issues with old age and broken body parts? Well, we, we keep joking, even though you are, uh, what are you, 12, 13 years older than I am, I always refer to you as the young hip pastor. Yeah, no, I am. I am definitely falling apart from a life of hard physical labor and uh, not wearing proper safety equipment like I should when using power tools and uh, not wearing back braces, remembering the adage to lift with the back, not with the legs. I'm, I'm oh, just, wait, it's the other way around. Yeah. yeah, I'm giving him a hard time because yesterday he was uh, all stooped over in the office and you know I wanted to say, hey, Nathan, can you reach up high and get this thing for me or uh, drop something, have him pick it up because he was just in so much pain. And, and, and I'll admit, I, uh, I threw my back out getting ready in the morning. I don't even have something good to say, you know, hey, I was, I was bench pressing 200 pounds. No, I, I was getting ready in the morning and somehow threw out my back. But for those of you who are listening, you understand this, that if you sleep wrong, you have the wrong pillow, all of a sudden you have all kinds of aches and pains. But I bring all of that up to say that what does Jesus say uh, through this elder to John and us? Because they are 
because of this, they are in front of the throne and they serve him day and night in his temple. Not just once in a while or one hour a week, uh, but every day. He who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. So it's a tent of protection. They will never be hungry or thirsty ever again. You know, we're used to having water just come out of the faucet anytime we want, uh, go into the refrigerator and cabinet to get food. That's not the way it was in, uh, to the people that, Paul, that John was writing to, and that's certainly not the way it is still today around the world. Uh, the sun will never beat upon them, nor any scorching heat. So you know, here, here in Wisconsin, we just had snow on October 31st, and you know, we're going to be getting ready for like six months of not seeing the sun. That's what it feels like around here. But John, again, is writing to people. They have a, a, a sun that is just beating down on them. It's, a, you know, in Israel, you know, they get rain twice a year in spring and fall, and then that's it. Otherwise, it's the sun. Uh, for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. So there's that dichotomy of a lamb that's also the shepherd, and he'll lead them to springs of living water, or we might say here the water of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So all that mourning and crying and pain, the suffering, it's all gone, and we'll not have any tears anymore. You just think about the picture of heaven is so unlike our existence here on this world, where we're always thinking about, for the most part, our next meal, where that's going to come from. And if we don't have food for a day or two, that's always on our mind. I think about that idea of no pain. Well, you, you have teenage boys. We never have food. <laughs> or we do have food, and then it's not the food they want to eat anyways. No, I was thinking about, you know, since we're, we're uh, lightly poking fun of me, that idea of there being no pain. That's just an everyday occurrence. I know, it's an everyday, and it's been an everyday occurrence of my life. Yeah. Um, I seriously messed up my knee playing high school football, and I have been in constant knee pain since I was 15. I, I don't know what that would be like to not have pain because it's just something in this life you get used to. It. We all have aches and pains. We all have things that bother us. But to live where there's no pain, where there's no, no sorrow, where we're just living in perfect contentment, perfect happiness in the presence of God for all eternity. Um, and again, how John is pointing back to the book of Isaiah here. Um, and when I had preached on this at the chapel for seminary last year, I talked about how Isaiah seems to be struggling for how to describe what heaven is going to be like. And the best he can do is describe it by what it's not. It isn't pain. It isn't suffering. It isn't sorrow. It's something that's so far outside of what our normal day-to-day -day existence on this world is like, that it's just something we can look forward to with awe and anticipation. Yeah, that was the note I had written for myself, too, is oftentimes we can't describe what heaven is like. It's often described by here, we, we hear the elder describing as what it's not. Uh, it's not scorching heat. It's not uh, thirsty or hungry and so forth. Anything else you want to bring up with this text? No, I don't think so. I just, I really like the Festival of All Saints. It wasn't something that... So do you want to explain what the Festival of All Saints is? Yeah, I, I was going to do that. We we didn't really do this in our church growing up. Yeah. One of the traditions we have, and one of the traditions many churches have, is that um, at some point during the service, you... Well, let me, oh. let me just, before you, you explain that, just in a wider macro level, 
is the All Saints. So, you know, coming from you know Lutheran Church, coming from the Catholic Church, the Catholic Church be filled with all kinds of saints' days, and we we still celebrate in the Lutheran Church saints from Scripture as well. We have a festival for Saint Timothy and Saint Paul and Saint Stephen, the first murder, uh, the Saint Innoc- the Innocents on December twenty sixth. Those that were uh, two years and old and younger that were killed in Bethlehem as Herod was trying to get to the baby Jesus and so forth. But what All Saints Day then became is a day to remember all the saints that have passed during that year. So now if you want to explain what we do specifically in a micro level at our church. Yeah, so we will read off the names of those who have been called home to heaven since last All Saints and read a Bible passage talking about um, either the new life in heaven or talking about our victory over death in Christ. Um, And it's a chance for people to remember that in this world, we face the horror of death. It's all around us, but we're looking forward to eternity in heaven where there is no death, where there is no more weeping and crying or pain. And it's an opportunity on a Sunday to put both of those things right next to each other a reminder of the consequences of sin and a reminder also of the victory in Christ. And I just, I really like it. Um, growing up, we often did this on New Year's is when we would do it. But I I personally think, and many other people have thought too, that it fits much better for the Festival of All Saints um, to have that picture of what our life is like in this world. And, you know, I gave Nathan the prayer I've been using for a very long time for All Saints Day. And one of the petitions in there is one for miscarriages. And the reason I did that is because uh, a number of years ago, he had a member that had had suffered a couple of miscarriages. They were trying really hard to get pregnant and really desired a child. And then I added that prayer. And it, it became be- beneficial because uh, a number of other ladies in our congregation over the years have also suffered miscarriages. And it's just entrusting uh, those the souls of those children that were not born to the Lord. And then also letting those parents know that you know, we care about them as well with that. Uh, because oftentimes, and these are discussions I've had with parents, is if their child is born and then lives and then dies... Well, then there's a funeral and there's grieving and so forth, but oftentimes those parents grieve alone when there's miscarriages and they don't really talk to each, well, they may talk to each other about it, but they don't really talk to others about it. And it's kind of like a, a silent mourning. And so I've really counseled both the husbands and the wives to be open. And one guy who suffered with the miscarriage from his wife is he was a police officer and he's a tough guy. But he opened up to, to me that he went to the police force and he had to tell them. And those guys all rallied around him. They shared their stories. They prayed with him. And they cried with him. And that's a, that's a wonderful thing uh, for, for you who are listeners. You know, when you suffer a miscarriage and so forth and no others that have, talk to them about it. I have someone else I know that uh, she, I had just seen on Facebook. You know, she's got a number of children and then she, but she said that um, she referenced how many other ones that she's lost because of miscarriage. And but she, those children are named, and she thanks God for those children as well. Yeah, it's a, it's a difficult thing. Um, my wife and I 
suffered through this as well. Um, and I know it's something that still deeply affects both of us. And again, we just put our trust in God and I cannot, I'm really bad at coming up with specific Bible references. Um, but there is, there's a verse in Isaiah we've taken a great deal of comfort from both with the miscarriage and with some other personal tragedies we've suffered, um, over the last couple of years is that, um, it talks about how sometimes God calls those out of this world, uh, to call them home to save them from the troubles of this life. And that's one of the ones we put our comfort in uh, with miscarriage, that God called these children home so they wouldn't have to suffer here in this life. Yeah, and and then with that, just tying everything together is, because I don't want to end kind of on a downer talking about these things, but the idea is we are going to suffer. This is the church militant, and we are going to have tears. And yet, what does Jesus say? Uh, that those who mourn will be comforted. And that ties in perfectly with what uh, the elder says to John, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So this is Pastor Michael Zarling with Pastor Nathan Klusmeyer from the Springs of Living Water at Water of Life. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wants the water of life take it as a gift. Stay thirsty, my friends, then drink deeply from the water of life. <laughs>